millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992 here from our perch in 2023. I'm one of your hosts, Phil Isco. I'm your special guest host, Emily St. James, sitting in this week for your regular host, the uh, metal band Slayer, who had to recuse themselves for obvious conflict of interest reasons. Totally fair. Totally fair. With us today, Joanne Robinson, back, finally back uh, on the mic to talk with us today about... The original Buffy the Vampire Slayer, not, we'll talk about the television show as well, I'm sure, but um, I reached out to you a few months ago, and I was like, would love to come have you come on for 1992. You said, of course, and you gave me a, a list of films that you would be interested in talking about. This was one of them. I know you're a big Buffy fan of the television show, yes, correct? correct. I don't know what your thoughts are on the film. We're obviously going to find that out today. But did you rewatch this before talking of about course. this? Of course, yes. I, 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 that wasn't a quiz. I just mean, <laughs> I, I just, I'm curious now, I'm assuming it's been a beat since you've watched this film or have you watched it relatively recently? Uh, it's been a beat, but I wouldn't say it hasn't been since 1992 that sure, I saw sure, this sure. film. But yeah, it had been a minute, but... I mean, this this might be skipping ahead to another question you have, That's but funny. I saw this movie for the first time when I was 12 at a sleepover. I have such a strong mm-hmm. memory of that. Mm-hmm. And it was a very important movie to me for some reason. I loved this movie. And, you know, before the TV show yeah. was even a glimmer in my eye. And um, I loved this movie. So rewatching it this morning, which I did, I was like, oh, yeah, I still know all the lines. <laughs> Because, like, not only did I watch it, I would, like, quote it endlessly. And, like, I had other friends who were really into it, too. I have no idea why. And, like, so I am incapable of giving, like, a clear-eyed... I don't think you brought me on here to give you a clear-eyed review of this film. I don't... I have no perspective when it comes to... That's what Emily's for. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I watched this last night for the first time ever. But I have very strong memories of seeing, like, an Entertainment Tonight package about this at my grandmother's house and like my grandmother was like the one person who would let me watch film and television and i saw that and i was like i gotta see that and anyway uh 30 some years later i did (laughs) you made it happen (laughs) you know it's it is funny because i feel like i don't i don't begin to suggest that i am a buffy fanatic 
Um, I did a, a Patreon episode with uh, Jarrett Weisselman and Kelly uh, Kelly Keeley Flaherty a few weeks ago, where we talked about we compared and contrast two Buffy episodes, and they obviously can go very deep on that show. Um, so within like Buffy lore, which I'm I'm looking to you. Well, I guess you were also a Buffy fan, correct, Emily, from the show? I or? like uh, we're this is this is gonna. You remember how you and our guests were about Aaron Sorkin and a few good men? Uh-huh. You were about to go there with me with Joss Whedon. He was my my dude i okay, love okay. he's like one of the formative creative figures of my life and that's not a complicated thing at all now <laughs> not at all not at all no and and we will talk about that as well but i do the reason i bring this up is because it feels to me at least to fans of the show that this movie is kind of a redheaded stepchild right like that it's not as i mean just because joss has been so uh outspoken about his feelings about this film i think that purists of the show seem to look at this movie as sort of a weaker thing am i crazy in that assessment no definitely but yeah and i think i think that's true um yeah buffy is probably the most important show of my entire life and uh joss is very important to me and it is extremely complicated as emily said um and uh we'll we can talk about Mm -hmm. as much of that or as little of that as we want to but i think what's true is you know joss talks about you know frustrating lack of control around this film you know essentially he wanted to direct it i was something i did today that i'd never done is i read his original script and was sort of just like comparing it to the end product it's not that different really from his original script we can talk about some of the differences and so i think he was just you know like a frustrated creative i completely understand and seemed to have very personal beef with donald sutherland like specifically (laughs) was a major issue so he doesn't like it and i think if i were like a joss acolyte Mm -hmm. and he had done a bunch of other stuff and and disdained this film I would be like justice for Joss. He didn't get to have his vision, but he got like he got to he make did. his Buffy. He yeah. had years and years and years to go deep on the lore. That's a lot of what caught cut was like some vampire lore stuff. Like he he went deep for years. So that so his Buffy exists, and so then I just like this as this like interesting curio. And I think an interesting thing to talk about when you compare and contrast is that this is this one's directed by a woman and i think some of the changes that are made from his script just like little tweaks to lines um is the input of a woman trying to tell a story of a teenage girl versus joss a man trying to tell a story of a teenage girl who's an insert for his own frustrations of feeling like ostracized um so that that I think is an interesting part of it. I like, but if but for Buffy purists who are like the movie sucks, and especially like if you watch it maybe with no '90s nostalgia fondness around it or whatever, I can see how you would dismiss it. But I have not only '90s; I was 12 when I watched it, nostalgia for it, but also like '80s nostalgia for like the B movies that it is like obviously pulling from or the cult movies like Highlander like there's a bunch of stuff that like I would watch on TBS late at night in the 90s that have their DNA all over this that I respond really well to so I mean I I certainly would not want to put uh, words in in Joss's mouth but I do feel like there's a little bit of resentment as well it feels like in terms of um some of the money that was made by some people off of this project mm-hmm. to some degree. I didn't I, know Dolly Parton was involved. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of those things where a I'm a like, twist. Yeah. 
Does Dolly Parton get like five bucks every time I buy some Buffy merch? Does that happen? I'm I'm like I'm happy to enrich her. Yeah, I'm, but... I'm, as am I. I mean, I think I think it's primarily Fran to some degree who mm-hmm. who you know is obviously um, has sort of almost you know, back end participation in the television show because of the movie, um, and I think there's a little bit of that that might rankle him a little bit again it, it, what's weird is that so i watched this film yesterday um i hadn't seen it since i was also probably 12 my I, weirdly my parents took me to see this film in theaters and i only say that's weird because i remember going with my dad and my stepmom to see it and this is not a movie that they would have any interest in seeing yeah and i certainly don't imagine that i was the one that brought it up to them so i'm just it was just one of those like why this one guys like why why did this happen but but all that being said um i remember kind of liking it as a kid and then obviously the show was the show and i have not watched the movie since so it was really interesting to watch it yesterday and sort of see what you're talking about joanna of you know the the valley girl thing that seemed to be a thing and i'm curious as to where you guys come out on that but also just like the tone of this movie isn't that far from the tone of the show like it's a little dialed up and it's a little broader but like it's not that far from the show season one especially i would say that the show eventually gets to a richer deeper darker place especially you know the deeper you get in the run um seasons five and six especially are are pretty pretty dark in many ways um but yeah i think i mean i was someone who was a diehard fan of the show had never seen the movie had was aware of it you know because of that that entertainment tonight package and when wb launched it we didn't get wb where i live so i was like reading about it in entertainment weekly and they were like there's a buffy the vampire slayer show and i was like but they had they made a movie of that and that movie failed and i was like that's why are they doing that that should never happen and now that's like all of entertainment like that's just like we're making tv shows of failed movies and you're gonna like them and i'm like okay but the thing is i'd never seen this And when I watched it last night, I had come so far around on this TV show that is one of the most vital pop culture documents of my life. But now it's like there's all these complicated feelings around it that I could watch this and be like, yeah, that was okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I I do have a question for you guys in terms of the show. Um, What do you think it is about that show? And not just for you guys personally, because obviously I want to hear that, too. But, you know. Buffy runs so deep, right? In terms of culture, in terms of kind of the ripple effect of shows that have been kind of ripping it off. And I don't even mean just within the the genre space. I just mean in, in, in all sorts of different ways. I feel like it's had a huge impact. And yet, if you look at its ratings at the time, like it was it was a modest size success, but it was by no means a cultural phenomenon in the way that and maybe it's just all the friends that I have, but I mean, truly all my friends are just like, it changed me. And I was like, so why do you think that is? Well, are you talking about friends who are in the industry? Well, yes. And also not, but sure. I think, um, you know, a lot of people who then went into film and television look to the show as a cultural reset, um, the way that, you know, people also talk about Twin Peaks and a few other things, but the mm-hmm. way in which Joss in the show space and Emily 
I'm sure knows way more about this than I do, but like the introduction of the concept of the big bad or the way in which long season long arcs mixed with monster of the week stories and all that sort of stuff felt like it was a reset in the way that we tell television. Also, this comes out a couple years before Dawson's Creek, but like the Kevin Williamson, Joss E's, like they're different, but they're similar in their yeah. sort of like, you know, very snarky, very pop culture based. This is not how real teens talk at all. That's like what my so-called life is for. This is, you know, this is a, a like hyper reality, very clever, very witty, very smart, very fast. And so I think people who like become writers, you know, like, cause not just in the film and TV industry, I was, I've been working on this Marvel book for a million years and like on, in the Joss chapter, I just like went through and found all the writers who cite Joss Whedon as like this seminal, important, game changing. And, you know, you'll have high end, you know, you'll have David Foster Wallace say it. You'll have David Simon say it. You'll have Shonda Rhimes say it. Like all these people are saying the way in which Joss writes just sort of tickles something for people who love mm -hmm. language. Um, and then at its base, it's a show, you know, that this protagonist uh, in the form of Buffy Summers and then eventually like the Scooby gang around her or something like that are so relatable in that the way the grand metaphor that he put together works so well of what if the monsters of your high school were literal monsters and like a lot of people who felt like bookish and weird and outsider or fans of genre maybe felt that way um sure. yeah i'm interested in what you think emily though i think that this show i think you're right that it really changed a lot of how tv was plotted in a way that we like don't really realize because it is just iterating on like what x-files was doing but it's like turning the screws and it's also throwing in a lot of x-men comics because sweden was hugely influenced by those so mm -hmm. he's taking the structure of comics adding it to what x-files was doing and then playing out across a tv season and that's basically the invention of modern serialized television like certainly other shows are mixed up in there but buffy's kind of where it first gets synthesized it airs at a time when the internet is starting to be the predominant place where people talk about tv like buffy i think of buffy the sopranos and the west wing is all kind of being part of this early like we're going to be discussed online to death. And Buffy's the one show that like embraces that. Like Joss Whedon occasionally goes online and says stuff instead of writing episodes about Josh Lyman yelling at people who are posting online. <laughs> I do think Lemon like, mm -hmm. I, I do think like what is interesting about Whedon is that it is much easier to write bad Joss Whedon than it is to write bad Sorkin. Like Sorkin's thing is so specific and he frequently writes bad Sorkin. I don't want to like write that off, but like it's so specific that not a lot of other people are doing it, or if they do, it just is obviously bad. Joss Whedon, like the way his characters talk is now basically the way everybody in pop culture talks. But like when you go back and watch something he wrote, even this, which I think is not his finest work, like there's a specificity and a timing sure. and a precision to it that is so appealing to someone with like terminal writer brain, I think uh, at least people who are like very drawn to this sort of storytelling, which is not everyone. And I think that, you know, you read a lot of his interviews and it's just him complaining about actors, not saying his lines, right. Which to me as someone, you know, who loves actors is a little uh, not great. Like I, I think that's, that's not, the way that we should be working with our collaborators, but you get it because he's got such a specific ear for what he's trying to do. Mm -hmm. And then the actors that can hit it 
I think a lot about how um, he and J.J. Abrams are kind of also of this similar generation. And Abrams, I think, is better at casting overall. Like Abrams found a whole bunch of people who went on to have huge careers. But Whedon is really good at casting actors who can speak his specific dialogue. And when he doesn't find them, then it just like falls apart. Like Donald Sutherland is doing a good job in this movie, but he is not really being in this movie at the same time like he's giving it gravitas and yet he's also like kind of just trying to make his own thing and i understand why that so bothered him yeah the jj thing is an interesting you know connection too because i feel like and again like who really knows but jj doesn't certainly have the reputation of being as precious about his words as the other writers, the aforementioned writers that we're speaking of, the Sorkins, the Whedons, um, the Amy Sherman Palladinos, the, the the people where there is a very sort of theatrical, almost iambic pentameter to the way that they want their words set. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's so specific to your point, Emily, and there's so, you need to have people that can do that, you know what I mean, that dance. And it is interesting to watch this film, which doesn't seem particularly interested in those things. Um, And that's not to say that there isn't a deep bench of great actors in this movie, because there actually really is. And I actually think that a lot of these people give great performances, but it is sort of antithetical to everything you're talking about, which is that you're getting the sense that they're all kind of in their own movies. I do, you know, just, just, just to hit one more point on the show. Sure. I do think, you know, there's a recent episode of Succession that did a thing that surprised a lot of people. Sure. This, is, this is airing in 2026. Yeah, you, this so I can just July. say, you can they say killed, yeah, they yeah. killed Logan. They killed Logan Roy. And like the thing that everybody reached for was an episode of Buffy. Like that was kind of the last time a show had done really? that. There's Which all like the body? the body. The body. Yeah. The body, and yeah. like obviously, like Six Feet Under with Nate did some of it, but like the body is specifically about living in that grief space yeah. in a way that the succession episode was. Um, Connor's Wedding is the name of the episode. And Indeed. like it, there's just stuff that Buffy did first. And now everybody's done it, so it doesn't seem as groundbreaking. But, you know, her losing her virginity to Angel, which, like, there's problematic aspects to that metaphor. And then him, you know, becoming a monster. But also, like, you know, the big bad thing and the the twists of, you know, who's uh, uh, the twists of various characters and, like, the mayor and Faith and all of these things. These are not unprecedented in human storytelling, but TV hadn't, like, done them in that way before. And I think, like, I mean the most obvious example of how Buffy changed everything is that Shonda Rhimes watched a bunch of it when she had a kid and was like, I think I should do that in a hospital. And that became like one of the biggest shows of all time. So. And I think that even before, I mean, the body is that comp is so interesting because of that grief space, but that idea of like killing a major character uh, in the middle of a season that comes as early as season two. I mean, Mm -hmm. Or if you're an Eric Balfour fan in the pilot of Buffy, you know what I mean? Like kill someone that you think, yeah, whomst among us, but like (laughs) killing someone that you think is going to be a main character in Eric Balfour in the pilot of Buffy or in Jenny Callender in season two of Buffy. And not only does she die, she dies by the hand of like the romantic lead of the show. And that like that moment, that episode, like passion, that rocked my entire world as a teenager like I and I'm still not over it because I was like you're not allowed to do that like legally you're not allowed to do that and just like watch me do it again and again and again well that's and, you know and upset the, you every time the, the the Patreon episode that I was referring to was about becoming part one and part two and comparing those two episodes um and 
listening to Jared and Keely talk about how it fucked them up on a level that even to this day, they just can't really process. Like as a teenager seeing her kill Angel, um, that whole, th- it, it just, it, it, and even watching it, you know, through my prism of, of what have you, not being the biggest, the, the, the fans that you guys are, even I was just like, this must've been pretty fucking crazy to watch live. And, oh, then, it was. and then the yeah. Sarah McLaughlin like kicks in yes. Yes. and she puts on the sad overalls and takes the yes. bus out of town. Are you it's kidding so me? The, the first episode I ever watched was the episode where Angel goes evil. And like, I had no context for it, oh, but I was wow. like, this fucking rocks. This is great. <laughs> I think there's just like, I think there is a certain kind of heightened emotionality that particularly mm. hits teen girls and teen queer kids that Buffy just like nails to the mm. wall sure. in a way that I think is, is when you're in it, you're, you're fucking in it. And then all those people went up to create television shows. So, <laughs> and something that I think is interesting, I mean, like to compare Buffy the show to Buffy the movie mm. um, like there's you know there's a million differences and I think all the things that we are saying about the way in which this isn't like true to the core of Joss is uh, true but also this is this is a character at a very different point in her arc right we are watching her and you know you mentioned becoming like they retread this a bit in the show and then in the comics again as well but like you know her coming to Sunnydale in the show is her already having learned about her identity and like gone through something and being aware, watching her go from, you know, her completely privileged pillowed life through this awakening is a different story. And so she's a different character. Also, she's played by Chrissy Swanson, which is just a different (laughs) prompt altogether, I would say. Uh, Yeah, exactly. But, um, but I, I think something that I thought was really interesting looking at the original script that Joss wrote versus what eventually made it onto screen is like um, the the Swanson version of Buffy that we get is much more likable than the person that Joss put on screen in the first place. Mm. Like he, he and like, is that I mean, I hate talking about likability in women um, in general, and I and I hate when other people do it, too. But I just think it's I think what the changes were trying to tell us was that this was a part of her always and she is sort of like awakening to that versus like let's do a complete 180 on a a complete 180 on a character do you know what i mean yeah yeah there's i i think you know uh again to sort of return to the movie there's a lot of stuff that he does in the tv show over much greater spans of time that happens in this movie in like an hour and a half. You know, the, the fact that the mentor figure is this, this uh, top of act three death, the, you know, the fact that um, she does like, there are these character arcs, like there's like 16 Cordelia's in this movie. Like it's, it's, it's uh, one of them is played by Hilary Swank. Who's not who I would necessarily cast in that part, but you know what? She's having a ball. So she's cast is stacked. Um, but yeah, there is the, there is this thing where like the movie feels like this imperfect thing, uh, representation of what he eventually was sort of trying to make on television. And it feels like the history of Joss Whedon in the movies outside of that first Avengers movie, which I think is pretty great is like studios like coming in and fucking with his shit and then him being like and then somebody leaks his Wonder Woman script online and everyone's like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) I, I do want to sort of, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this, because it feels like 
the the Joss, and I hate to attribute this just to him because I don't think it's just him. You know, Joanna, you referred to Williamson as well, which I think was also very much a part of it. But snark in replacing of jokes seems to be a thing that has become very prevalent. And I bring this up just because I went to see Dungeons and Dragons recently, the, uh, which was great. And Good movie. Good see. movie. Good movie. Super fun movie. Um, that movie's got actual jokes. Like that movie is sincere and that movie isn't winking at the audience and that movie isn't doing what I feel like is kind of everywhere, which is letting itself off the hook and allowing the audience in by saying like, we know it's a joke. Like we, we know this is silly. You know, the Deadpool kind of meta-ness that yeah. seems to be very pervasive. What, what are your, your thoughts on that? Well, I think on the, on the Whedon Williamson front, um, what Emily already raised this idea that like that snarky quippy dialogue is being used in teenage soaps. Like Buffy's a genre show, but it's a teenage soap. Dawson is to its bone a teenage soap, you know? And so that heightened emotionality, like there's a lot of sincerity. There's a lot of emotion like racing through those stories. Uh, But then when you, when you watch some of like Williamson's movies or whatever, like that's not in there, he's not operating the same space. And I think, I, when I was wa- I was thinking about that and I, when I was watching the movie this morning and thinking about the casting of Luke Perry is really interesting because the casting of Luke Perry changed like the whole movie because it was going to be a smaller independent film and then they got Luke Perry and all of a sudden the studio is like oh we're going to put some money behind this because you've got <laughs> yeah. Dylan McKay um, <laughs> but like he's kind of trying because this is something he did very well he's kind of trying to bring some of that to this so like when they're slow dancing he's like trembling like he's trying to like bring this deeper emotionality to this very light and fuzzy uh kind of space but i can i can i please read to you the description of pike that was in joss's script absolutely versus uh what we got (laughs) um so he called them where is it let me find it one okay um punked out and not currently attending high school punk pike is long and lean has short hair spiked and a taste for long coats and black so joss wanted spike (laughs) and they gave him dylan mckay instead (laughs) And I love Luke Perry in this. I actually think he's great in this movie. But if I'm Joss and I'm like, and I had Spike in mind and they gave me Luke Perry, I I might also be mad. No, I I totally hear that. And and it is funny how, because there's obviously there's the whole Angel versus Spike thing in and of itself. There are people that are obviously Team Angel, people that are Team Spike in terms of Team Riley. Team Team Riley. Riley? Emily, this is like the worst thing I've ever heard you say. (laughs) I'm actually like, I'm actually like, I'm very much Team. She should be with none of them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Team Buffy. Yeah. um, But I, I, I do think that it is. The Luke Perry thing is interesting. So Beverly Hills Matter 2.0 premieres in, is it 89 or 90? I think it's I think it's I think it's 90 okay I think so it's it's in it's probably its second or third season it's obviously this big hit um so to get Luke Perry was like a big get and I do imagine too that you know I don't know getting the 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 teen heartthrob from a television show in your movie has its own thing as well right where you're just sort of like 
the legitimacy of someone trying to go from television to movies and all all those sort of things that come with that. But he is really good in this movie. He's he's very sincere in this movie. Um, so and and he has really great chemistry with Christy Swanson. So like. It's kind of a win-win, but I do understand how if you're Jaws, you're probably like, but it's not what I wanted. I don't know. I What I love is, like, I was reading some old interviews that Luke Perry gave around this film, and he's it's very sweet. Like, he wanted to do this because he wanted people to, like, not just see him as Dylan McKay, which, sure. like, didn't ultimately work out for him, I think. Um, And then, like, and by the way, like, rest in peace, Luke Perry. Yes. I met him once. It was, like, one of the most thrilling oh. things of my life. I didn't know him, obviously, but, like, I don't usually get starstruck because, you know, we've just done a lot of this in our lives but like sure. it was luke perry was like, <laughs> um but first of all he refers to pike as the damsel damsel in distress of the movie which i love it's true um and then he also talked there's this quote in the la times where he says um uh, like the first day of shooting about 300 people showed up mostly screaming girls rutger and donald weren't working there that day and i was so glad because i didn't want these two well-established respected mm-hmm. actors to walk on the set and think oh no we're making a movie with frankie avalon and so like <laughs> luke perry is like so aware of like who he is in all of this and not wanting to be that and like wanting to impress ricker Hauer and donald sutherland and i just i find that very winning i mean it, it is and it's and it's it's not surprising to a certain degree right i mean they've probably got let's say 25 30 years in between them something along those lines and i imagine that as a young up-and-coming actor you'd want to impress both these people donald sutherland clearly was unimpressed on the set no matter what you did (laughs) so there's that but what were you gonna say emily uh i want i want to speak a little bit to the Mm -hmm. snark joke divide um because mm. that's the thing that people say and i don't always know what they mean by it you okay. know like i think i but i i've sort of come to understand that what they mean is using a line that's phrased like a joke and that the actor says like a joke but actually is just kind of a reference to something and i think yes i think the difference between joss whedon at his best he's not always at his best and a lot of people who copied him is he never does that like he's always very good at like having Mm-hmm. layers to things at making them actual jokes like i i used to obsessively read jane espenson's uh blog sure. she's a longtime writer on buffy and she would talk about their process for writing jokes on that show and it was like as rigorous as like um a, a sitcom room and like i do think that there is I, and again i think that luke perry is a good window into this there is a sincerity to everything mm-hmm that happens in one of these scripts i think there's a sincerity to everything kevin williamson does he's someone who's been bad a lot more often than joss has been bad but like you know you watch like scream there's a sincerity to that movie like deep down beneath all the all the gore and and uh, pop culture jokes it's i think there is a thing that happens it's kind of the same thing as the divide between the simpsons and family guy where family guy comes on and is like you can just say the thing and people will laugh if they recognize it and of course it works so like i think i think there is luke perry's such a good example of this and i think honestly christy swanson is also giving like a very sincere performance in this i agree you know it's it's there there is a layer there is a layer to this script and to the direction of it that i think is capturing something real about the teenage experience it's just maybe not you know doing it the best it possibly could on the buffy joke front i um one of the clearest writer's room lessons i ever learned 
was listening. I think it, it was either Jane or Marty Knoxon on one of the like commentaries on a Buffy episode. And they were describing how they were putting together the scene, like one of the scenes in the library where Buffy's friends are all talking or whatever. And, uh, and Joss came in to like go over a script and he uh, like out, uh, called out a line. He's like, what is this line? And they're like, oh, no, it's a, it's a joke that, you know, we gave Willow. He was like, that's a Xander joke. And they're like, okay, yes, Willow didn't have enough lines. So we just gave her a Xander joke. And he's like, you can't just give Willow a Xander joke. Like you just can't like, you know, we're, and, and so that I think is like the difference to partially Emily's and, and both of your points of like good of Joss versus people just trying to imitate Joss. You know what I mean? Cause like there are, um, there are Joss imitators where everyone just sounds the same mm-hmm. and that's not sure. what he does. You know, I think that to, to, to try to unpack sort of what you're both saying, but also Emily, the whole, like, what are people saying when they say snark instead of jokes? I do think part of it has to do with uh, a mutation of Whedon and Williamson and and I would even go as far as to say Dan Harmon now where like you're in this place of like meta textuality that requires very specific writing like you can't ultimately I think Deadpool's the thing that tipped it in a lot of ways because Deadpool went to sort of this place of quite frankly, literally winking at the camera, like literally talking to the camera and being like, do you see what I'm doing here? And that I think, at least for me personally, and it feels like to some degree, you're seeing it in some of these Marvel films as well, where it's like, we've kind of got lost a little bit in all of this. And I think that's why something like a Dungeons and Dragons felt so fresh in its own way, because it felt like, it's not doing that. Like, I agree with you. And I, and I don't mean to, I certainly didn't mean to suggest that, um, uh, that Kevin Williamson or, or, or Josh Whedon weren't thoughtful about their jokes and weren't sort of making sure that there was, that there was some, you know, substance to what they were saying and that it was, that it meant something. I think we've just, we've, we've weaponized it in a somewhat kind of shitty way. <laughs> I do. I do really think it's the MCU specifically sure. post age of ultron like certainly i'm not saying like there's a lot of great movies in there a lot of great but movies. you know we- whedon comes in and like does avengers and then kind of oversees the writing for whatever phase two joe and i would know phase two. and like <laughs> that culminates in age of ultron which is a movie i'm endlessly fascinated by and think is is like it's you weird. know kind of a I, it's kind of my favorite <laughs> of course movie. it is the most it's Emily not take. it's not actually like you know obviously there's better <laughs> movies but like i i love watching that movie because it's so fucking weird um <laughs> but like and then the next you know he he steps away because he and marvel you know come to hate each yeah. other and but they continue to do the thing and i also think it's yeah. robert downey jr robert downey jr is sure. maybe the best actor alive at like delivering that Whedon thing sure. but like you know the thing he's doing where he can be like he's standing right behind me isn't he and he can make it funny yeah. like they just decide everybody should be able to do that and you're kind of like seeing the offshoots of that now in the MCU movies that feel kind of focus uh directionless without focus a lot of them are being written by Rick and Morty writers which is like yeah which is a part of the Dan uh, a show thing, yeah right? which is yeah. a show that is so like um you know, there, there's, there's been good stuff in there still, you know, but it is very much like his footprint looms so large because it became the default dialogue style of the biggest sure. movie franchise of the 2010s. Totally. I call it the Rick and Mortification of the MCU, but like, yeah. 
the <laughs> the downy Whedon like one two punch is so interesting. There's like this story that Whedon likes to tell about being on the set of Avengers and like so Whedon went through as a lot of Marvel's writers have like pretty nasty arbitration because like a different writer had been working on the Avengers script for a long time and Joss is like I threw it entirely out threw it mostly out but like he wanted solo writing credit right on this um and uh i think they wound up giving zach a story by credit but anyway he so he's he's on set robert down jr loves to improvise joss being very particular about his language doesn't love it when actors improvise so the compromise they come up with is like joss would just write six lines and then Downey could pick which one he was gonna say you know what I mean like if a, wow. if a line wasn't working for Downey in general if a line's not working for Downey he will just make up one that he thinks works mm -hmm. and since that bothered Joss he was like let me give you options and then you could just go for there but like but to Emily's point like that down that Whedon shadow and that Downey shadow which is you know what Downey can do is be both glib and very sincere at the same time mm -hmm. you know what yeah. i mean and 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 his absence is being sorely felt um in the mcu absolutely yeah, i would agree i, I mean I, I think there's as i think is uh chris evans but but all that being said i do think that joss's voice in this film can be felt obviously mm -hmm. um and i think it's interesting emily because we've 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 stumbled upon this a couple times now and I, and I imagine we will continue to as we keep going down this road in 92 but like you know we talked about it with reservoir dogs we're inevitably going to talk about it with strictly ballroom um you know we're, we're we're talking about it here where like the kind of the moment right the the first thing that these huge auteurs do that kind of um that you look at and be like is this kind of the skeleton key a little bit like can i kind of see all of their work through this prism. And this isn't a hundred percent Joss, as we've discussed, he didn't direct this. And there's any number of things that are different from what he originally wrote, but like there's a good swath of Joss here with which to kind of be able to pull stuff from. Let me give a little bit of context, 41 minutes into this episode so that, you know, people who haven't seen this film uh, for she's Buffy, Buffy and she's a vampire. <laughs> what more <laughs> do you need? Let me just do this uh, for Buffy Summers played by Christy Swanson. Nothing is the same after she meets Merrick played by Donald uh, Sutherland. Merrick tells the team that she's been sent to train her to fight vampires and proves himself by displaying his supernatural powers. Buffy is quick is a quick study and soon takes fellow student Oliver Pike played by Luke Perry under her wing repeatedly saving him from fierce bloodsuckers. But when a very dangerous vampire played by Rucker Howard gets rambunctious, she must go to war again. Buffy the Vampire Slayer opened on July 31st, 1992 against Death Becomes Her, A League of Their Own, Sister Act, and The Mighty Ducks. It would go on to make $16 million on a $7 million budget. It has 36% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 43 from audiences. The LA Times said, while it would be a mistake to oversell Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the sad and or happy truth is that you could do a lot worse on a warm summer night, which I think is faint <laughs> praise. Uh, Variety said a bloodless comic resurrection of the undead that goes serious just when it should go wild and woolly. And the New York Times said a slight good humored film that's a lot more painless 
uh, than you might have expected. I'm guessing Ebert did not review it. He did not review this film. That's why I do not have a Roger Ebert review. That's the thing is like, you know, every year in the summer, he'd just take a fucking week off because he was going on vacation, which is good like, for him. But it would just be like, and then he just didn't review Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And you're like, I wonder what he thought. He never put I, it in I'd his great curious. movies column. Like he yeah. should have. Yeah. I, I mean, I do think it is interesting to see First of all, to look at the weekend that it's in with some heavy hitters. I mean, Death Becomes or League of Their Own Sister Act, Mighty Ducks, which didn't actually come out this weekend, but that's an ongoing joke. I do think that I'm sorry, Emily, to 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 pull back the curtain on our Mighty, no, Mighty Ducks. Ducks my, Mighty Ducks has always been and always will be. I hope <laughs> if we do podcasts like it's 2023, you oh, continue will. to be like, Absolutely. and of course, the Mighty Ducks. The Mighty Ducks it's just always in theaters. Yeah. I I do think though. You know, I was thinking about, we did this episode earlier, uh, Emily, but Dracula comes out in the same year as this. Bram Stoker's mm-hmm. Dracula comes out in November of this year. Um, kind of crazy to think that these two vampire movies actually mm. exist within the same four months. It it, it really is, and, and it's not to say that Dracula wasn't successful, it was, but both of these films in their own weird way created a whole new sort of take on horror to some degree right i mean this is trying to thread that that horror comedy thing um which you know really once scream comes out is really the game changer but still like i do feel as though there there is a little bit of symbiosis there but you know bram stoker's dracula is also about legitimizing these horror films by putting the author's name in front of them so all of a sudden everything feels like it's it's legitimized but it is just interesting to sort of think about and again i wasn't as cognizant of filmmaking at the time i was only 12 but i'm curious as to sort of what you guys think of where horror is at this moment in 92 where it's going to go because obviously once i mean i don't know that jurassic park is the end all and be all but like there are some seismic huge studio blockbusters that are going to come out and kind of decimate this genre in its own way and kind of push it to the side a little but i mean where do you guys come out on sort of where buffy falls in the horror genre that's that's a great question i'm not like a i'm would never claim to be a huge horror scholar but i did just recently on another podcast i do trial by content we did three weeks of zombie movies oh nice and we it was fascinating to us how dry the nineties were for zombie movies. Oh yeah. Like, and, and we were trying to think about like culturally what was going on um, at the time that the nineties were so dry for zombies. <laughs> and um, one of my co-hosts had this whole theory about like a Democrat being in the office versus a Republican being in the office and like all, all there this could be stuff. something there. Um, But I think Cause, like zombies don't make a comeback until 28 days later. Really? Right. Isn't that right. one kind of, yeah. Yeah. And it's um, part of it, I think the kickstart of the second wave of zombies or whatever is 9-11. And 9-11 brings in a lot, like kicks open the door on a lot of genre content on Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, like blah, blah, blah. Um, And so the horror space, I think we're still coasting off the fumes of the 80s into the 90s. Um, And I, I, I think this just open, I mean, like, it's so funny. I don't think of Bram Stoker's Dracula as a horror movie, but of yeah. course it is. But like, I think of it as a literary adaptation. And I'm sure Francis Ford Coppola would as well. Sure. And then this seems like this doesn't seem like a horror movie. This seems like a like a 
a B monster movie comedy yep. sort of thing. And so I do think it feels again, like kind of dry until scream uh, comes in. So I don't no, know. Totally. You, Cause I do think, feel yeah. like you've got the eighties. Sorry, Emily didn't mean to cut you off, but the eighties you have sort of the, you know, a million Halloweens, a million nightmare on Elm streets, a million Friday the 13th, all that kind of stuff. And then that's kind of done. So there's this kind of fallow period where the studios are trying to figure out like, what is next in horror? And obviously it's Scream, but go ahead, I'm sorry. I think the 90s are the worst. I, this is probably why you don't want to leave the 90s in future seasons. The 90s are the worst decade for horror. Like, yeah, I don't in like the horror stu- In the studio system. Mm-hmm. Like we've watched, uh, we watched Candyman, which I think is an all-timer. Like that's, that's, you know, I think that's the best horror movie released mm-hmm. this year. It's also kind of the one pure horror movie. You know, this mm-hmm. is like, obviously there are others, but like, you know. Yeah, we Buffy, got Dr. Giggles. We got that to look forward to. We got to. Dr. Giggles to look forward to. <laughs> but like there's just yeah we're just in this space where so much horror in the 80s was a specific reaction to reagan the reagan reagan deal and like clinton just doesn't inspire that same like level of reactionary stuff you know that uh, the the popular theory which i joanna probably alluded to is that you know vampires are popular when republicans are in office because we're all scared of blood-sucking fiends who want to like take all our stuff and zombies are popular when democrats are in office because you know there's there's a fear of of having to be the strong individual who's like standing up against just enormous groups of people and like it kind of it kind of plays out like walking dead is popular when obama's in office and all of these things but it's very much like the 90s because we're in this weird cultural malaise after the collapse of of communism in eastern europe there's just like not a lot of fodder for people to make horror movies about and it's really you know, it really becomes the second wind comes from Scream and Scream is very much like we're just going to like do a commentary on horror. And Buffy's <laughs> kind of doing that. Like this movie is kind of playing around with tropes in a similar fashion to Scream without actually being Scream. But yeah, like I I struggle to find a lot of good pure horror movies in the 90s. I struggle to find a lot of good movies that have horror elements in them in the 90s. I think um, I think what's really interesting about this year 92 you mentioned a league of their own and sister act and this is also michelle pfeiffer as calvin and batman returns this is also yep. like single white female like there's a really interesting like female protagonist or female antagonist True. thread going on in this year and it's this pre spice girls sort of girl power thing where it hasn't been commodified quite commodified and packaged yet but like what I love about this movie, um, this Buffy Vampire Slayer movie, is like the like the whole joke, quote unquote, is you know Joss is like usually the blonde girl walks into a dark room with a vampire and she dies, and I want her to walk into a dark room with a vampire and kick butt. Like so, the whole joke is like she kind of she's a girl, but no one ever says that in the movie. There's never like a heck yeah girl power moment in the movie that's like overt in a way that makes me cringe um and that's something that i you know the the sort of like avengers endgame sort of moment that they mocked on the boys like stuff like that really bothers me and so i love that like i don't feel pandered to and what i like also is that um i don't think they really do this in the buffy tv show um like you know her having a win with the hairspray like her like her girlishness being an asset for her you know she 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 
goes through this transition she starts wearing like flannels and boots and cut off cut off jean shorts and like stuff like that she's moving away from mall culture but the fact that like mall culture is like part of what helps her win in the end her keen fashion sense like 10 out of 10 no notes i love that so uh yes absolutely um no i i I did want to just briefly shout out silence of the lambs which of course is the cultural horror juggernaut of the 90s a fantastic film and like uh, inspires 10 zillion serial killer movies which are sure much less good um but uh the yeah i think there is something about this movie and i think one of the interesting things about whedon's quote-unquote feminism which there's a lot to unpack Mm -hmm. there but one of the things that's cool about it is that he doesn't ever, almost never specifically is like, this is a moment of feminism. He's just like, he presents Buffy as someone who is capable of handling herself, even in this film, which is kind of a prototype of everything he's going to do, and then doesn't belabor the point. So that, yeah, kind of the joke is just, oh, she's a girly girl and she's killing the vampire. But like, he's very clearly clued into, and that's awesome, as opposed to like, isn't that funny? And I think that's like what makes his, again, quote unquote, feminism go and like what won him so many fans. And then, you know, there were limits to that approach. I I do want to sort of unpack the the Valley Girl thing for a second, because it is something that, um, you know, I, I, I watch this and it's hard not to see Cher from Clueless a little bit in Buffy. I know that obviously it comes out later, but there is sort of this, the mall culture of the 80s bleeding over into the into the 90s and and sort of that um forgive me but like ditzy girl with a heart of gold you know what i mean wants to be a better person longs to be a better person is trying to sort of figure out how to be um an individual uh all those sort of things mixed into all of this which i do think obviously uh was kind of weirdly prevalent at the time. Like, I I don't really know how to explain it outside of the fact that it feels like as I was watching this, I was like, yeah, I feel like I've seen this sort of prototype or this archetype used a fair amount. Um, Do you think that's just like, that's just a teen trope, I guess, that they kind of go back to? Well, we don't really do it anymore is what it was no. interesting to me watching this is I was like, wow, the concept of Valley Girl was so important <laughs> to the culture when I was growing up. And we just it's just gone the way that quicksand is gone, you know. And so, like, I think that I mean, you're referencing seminal works such as Beastmaster 2, I assume, when you're talking about the like Valley obviously, Girl with the Heart of obviously. Gold who wants to be a better person. Sure. But it, it was a thing. There was a thing, you know, like a, a few of those like. B movies from the 80s that I love to watch like Beastmaster 2 or mm-hmm. like um He-Man is like like you know they would lean on it was totally hilarious and tubular <laughs> when like a valley girl bumps up against like you know but seriously Conan the, the Barbarian um but and- every teen movie has that care like that character right it's just there was a moment when all of a sudden they became the the protagonist um what so what are more modern examples i'm just i'm mind? i'm thinking well no i'm I'm thinking about like your fast times at richmond high your various oh, yeah. sort of teen comedies at right. that time always had these characters in the background or part of your ensemble this just makes her the protagonist right and then same with clueless i think the crossover moment is the movie valley girl which is about sure. a valley girl mm-hmm. I, yeah, mean, I mean you might yes. be right you might be right i mean it is uh, i mean it's more about nicholas cage pretending he's a vampire but yeah I think I think to 
Emily's point, like this idea that that character was a punchline and now we're taking them seriously yeah, uh, yeah. and, and like respecting them as a human who deserves to be taken seriously. Sure. Um, and can kick ass. And can kick ass. That's great. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know. It's so interesting. The, the distinction between the way in which Joss writes about this character in a way that he didn't like, she's a, She's a bit more objectified in his version of the script than she is in the final version of this really? movie. And I think he had sort of washed some of that out of his system by the time that he got to the TV show, though obviously mm. not in his Wonder Woman uh, script. But like, um, <laughs> I love, you know, that like disastrous vulture profile of uh, Joss mm-hmm. Whedon. Um, one of my favorite lines that Lily Shapiro wrote in there was she was like, uh, Buffy is someone like that he wants to be and wants to fuck you know what i mean and i think that i think what's true about fran and making this movie is that second part isn't like getting in the way of her putting this character together so there's just little lines this is the interesting trade-off okay so there's a line in whedon's script when she's it's not the yellow leather jacket in the script but when she's looking at the thing uh the item of clothing that hillary swank is then gonna neg her about but um you know she says in this in joss's script she says wouldn't i look edible and nutritious in this and in the uh final cut it's wouldn't you guys love me in this this is the other thing because joss's line is better it's zingier it's more fun you know what i mean but like wouldn't i look edible in this is just sort of like I mean, maybe in a vampire movie, it's just funny, but like when you guys love me, there's just like a slight difference in that, that I, that you see it sort of smoothed out in a few, um, then there's still mention of Yabo's Defying Gravity that's in the final script. So I don't know. And also, lest we forget that one of her superpowers (laughs) is her menstrual cramps. PMS. Listen, Listen, we've all been there before. (laughs) I, I only bring this up just to say that I do think. I, just to talk about sort of the differences also performance wise between Christy Swanson and Sarah Michelle Gellar, obviously Sarah Michelle Gellar is iconic beyond iconic at this point in the role. Right. So it's, it's, it's almost an unfair fight, but I do think that Christy Swanson, um, despite the fact that I do feel like this movie's a breezy 86 minutes with credits. My assumption is that there's a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. Um, it, it certainly at moments feels like there's just stuff that's being truncated. But I do think that that Buffy's arc is pretty intact. And I do think that, that Christy Swanson um, does bring, she's funny and she's genuine. And I, and I buy her, I, I will say that my biggest beef with this movie is that the, the fight scenes are, awful like there is so they are bad um they're just there's no energy there's no propulsion they're just it it all it's just really rough so i can't say that i necessarily felt like she was a badass but yes emily do you think casey and scream is the last valley girl like (laughs) she's not specifically a valley girl but she like has drew barrymore has a lot of that intonation and a lot of that she does she does and then the archetype kind of goes away Kevin Williamson killed the Valley Girl. Yeah, but you're going to resurrect her when you write your your screen review about Casey, right? uh, The first scene, the cold open of Scream, kills the Valley Girl once and for all. Yeah, and like I also think, you know, um, 
uh, as a woman who works in podcasting uh, mm. now, the the thing where people talk like this a little bit, like when I did my voice training, I, I you know, you, you you add in a little bit of Valley Girl to like everything you say, mm-hmm. and then you you pull back, like you overcorrect, but like there's this fucking thing where literally any woman who's in podcasting, even if she doesn't have vocal fry, people will be like, that's a lot of vocal fry. And they just literally fucking mean you're a woman and you're on a podcast. So irritating. It's, I don't know how I got in this tangent, but it's very important to me to bring this up. Anyway, no, Sarah I, Michelle I, Geller. I appreciate it. I, I do think that, um, I mean, putting Christy Swanson's political views aside, which was not the easiest thing to do watching this film, if I'm being completely frank. Not I did great. find myself I honestly, about it. honestly, I don't know anything about them except that oh. I know that she's probably a piece of shit. Like I've heard, like I've heard people be like, oh, she says some bad things. And I'm oh, like, she's, you know she's I'm not going to look MAGA. this up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really unfortunate. At least Sarah Michelle Geller is like, you know, plausible deniability Republican, which is. <laughs> <laughs> and I also, I, I, I respect the way that Sarah Michelle Geller has navigated the joss of it all. I think mm-hmm. that she's done it quite for the most part, respectfully of all parties to some degree, but you know, anyway. And I mean, she and Freddie Prince Jr. are one of the great love stories I of all time. Love, Go ahead. Yeah, yeah I absolutely. Love their Instagram love story. Um, <laughs> I, uh, my friends, uh, Kristen and Jenny, hosted this the Buffering podcast, one of the uh, great rewatch podcasts that you should yeah. all listen to if you like Buffy. Um, but they and they had a bunch of interviews with cast members throughout, and then like the Joss thing hit the fan, and everyone was just like, "No, thank you. <laughs> like, don't oh, want to really? talk about this yeah. huge show that was like a huge thing in my life." And it's like. You know, yeah, really understandable, but like really unfortunate at the same time. It's, I mean, listen, I, I, I'm certainly not uh, defending him in any way, shape, or form. I think that you know it's all kind of messy, and I don't feel like we need to really do much of a deep dive into it. But I'll just say that uh, it's got to be really hard to be a diehard fan of this show and find that you know, the separation of art and artist is everyone's, you know, cross to bear in the current, you know, pop culture landscape and everyone makes their choices. And I imagine if I loved this show, like that it was in my bones, um, that I would probably find a way to try to see, not see past it, but be able to enjoy the show still, but it's gotta be tough. Well, it's also like Joss Whedon is in this uneasy space that a lot of men who made things Mm -hmm. in the 90s and 2000s are where he's done bad stuff he's done stuff that like i object to but also like if he had just like never said anything like he like there would have been this thing where he like gradually would and like but he keeps like giving interviews it's crazy and it's crazy he's he's like vulture vulture profile like who okayed that oh my god (laughs) So it, I mean, I, I know a little bit about the behind the scenes of that and we can talk about it off mic, but mm. like the, um, the thing of like, where there is this thing where there's like all these guys who did bad things and then someone will be like, well, they weren't illegal. And like, it's so many people and you're like, and then you like, because you love Buffy and you're like me, you like, are like trying to say, well, what can I find in here? That's not him. And it's all him, you know, it's uh, similarly season like season six. Um, you can have yeah. season six when he <laughs> was making Firefly. And yeah. Marty, Marty was running the show. And listen, listen, Firefly, a wholly unproblematic show that has yeah. nothing wrong with yeah, it. Totally wrong with fine. It's fine. It's fine. I, but yeah, yeah, I don't, I never know what to do with, you know, because I'm, 
I don't think you can separate art and artist. And also like, I think that there's something in me that is like fascinated by when, when, you know, you're trying to do that and like unable to, I don't know. I, I, I'm I just think, thinking about the yeah. movie tar. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think specifically with Joss and with Buffy, like the things that Joss has done, um, so directly contradict Mm -hmm. what a lot of people thought of him you know so it's one thing to do not illegal but bad things and it to be sort of like nothing to do with your mission statement of your work or whatever but for joss to have created something like buffy which did radically change forever the way that we thought about like women young women and all this sort of stuff and like the way in which like queer people latch onto Buffy and like all this sort of stuff like that like the way that they see themselves and in that story uh it's like disappointing is too mild of a word of like of of how I feel personally around it but also you know you you don't want to make excuses but I also then get that stubborn like I don't want his bad behavior or his willingness to give ill-advised interview after ill-advised interview to like take this thing that is so important to me away from me you know what i mean like it's 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 as much mine as it is yeah is at this point and so that's how i feel about it it's like it's holding the tension in your brain of like this portrayal of teen girls that he came up with which is i think on its uh, somewhere deep inside of it very feminist and the guy who was like you know, using and mistreating people. And like, those are the same person. And like, one doesn't overwrite the other. And I think that tension is very hard to hold in your head. And the way you hold it in your head is you sort of return to the art and you're like, this is still in there. The good stuff is still in there. But that's also, you know, the art, the actors and the other writers and the directors and, you know, um, Christy Swanson, a person who's completely unproblematic in every way, as far (laughs) as I know, like... (laughs) Oh, well, that means you can watch Mannequin 2, Mannequin on the Move, and enjoy Christmas Monster and all our finery. Listen, (laughs) if I had seen this movie in 1992, it would have broken me. I would have immediately begun transitioning, and, like, I would have lost my family. I would have, like, had to go on the streets, but I would have been like, I have to be that person. (laughs) Thank you, Christy Swanson. You've done nothing wrong. No, I I think, and I, the last thing I'll say on the problematic Joss front is... When I rewatch Buffy, like my evolution of watching Buffy as a teenager versus watching Buffy as an adult is, and in the 90s versus now is really pivots around the Xander character who, Mm -hmm. and this is what a lot of people go through with their Buffy uh, experience, like that Joss thinks of Buffy as his author insert, but really Xander is his author insert and like watching I thought Xander was just so funny and so dreamy when I was a teen. And now I watch it. I'm like, you're every problem. You're all the problems think, in the shape of a man. Oh my I God. Think this is, I think this is an interesting thing to talk about um, from a, a trans perspective. And I'm going to say a bunch of stuff that sounds like I'm saying Joss Whedon is a trans woman. And I don't think he is. We don't want it. We don't want it. <laughs> but like, I definitely, when I watched the show, I thought I was Xander. I was like, well, I want to be Buffy, but like, she's so cool and awesome. And like, that's just a thing I can't achieve. And obviously now I look exactly yeah, sure. like, yeah, like I mean, Sarah Michelle Geller, yeah. which is all anybody knows. Um, <laughs> because as a podcast, you can't actually see me. Uh, but yeah, like there is this thing within trans spaces 
especially trans femme spaces of like this woman who is simultaneously like a love interest and like a like I want to be that person interest. So there's like a weird thing that gets all wrapped up in each other and gets all all melded and like the way that Joss Whedon treats Buffy is presumably accidentally like a just a perfect encapsulation of the way that feels and I think that's why like I glommed onto Xander so hard and then eventually I was like I wish I could be Willow which was like the third way it was like yeah. what if I was just a lesbian witch and Better. it worked I right. do think though <laughs> you know I don't know how I mean I, as a writer when I'm writing stuff I do put myself into the headspace of these characters, right? Like on some level, mm -hmm. there is an avatar component that comes with writing to some degree, right? I mean, in terms of, you know, I, I wrote a character that was, uh, you know, I wrote a, a pilot for NBC that was kind of, you know, Buffy-esque. And I did find myself, you know, wanting to be that character, right? Like I think as a writer, you, you, you kind of have to want to be, all the characters in some way or another. For sure. So and I'm not, again, just to be clear, not excusing anything that Joss did, but I do think that as a, as a writer, it is sort of this thing you're doing in a weird way to kind of live vicariously through your characters to some degree. So. And to be, to be honest, like there's so many of these great uh, dude writers of the nineties and two thousands sure. who found their like, they're like mouthpieces to be teenage girls. Like Lindsay sure. Weir on, on Freaks and Geeks is like yes. Paul Feig being like, here's how I think about the world. And like, <laughs> yes, yes. it's, it is just this weird phenomenon. For JJ. I was going to say yeah. Felicity and JJ for sure. <laughs> or, you know, Sidney Bristow, his, his clear, like, I mean, I'm, I'm working, I'm, I'm working on a book about, about Lost. And like, you look at that show and like, it's pretty clear from the pilot that JJ Abrams is like, yeah, Kate is, is my girl. And then he leaves and they're like, what do we do with Kate? Yeah. She was yeah. like JJ Abrams person. You felt you said that when you came generously came on the last podcast I did and you called Kate a JJ Abrams character trapped in a Damon Lindelof show. I was like, yes. That I said that? That's yeah. very smart. Good yeah. work, Emily. Yeah. Work, Emily. I got to write that into the book. Yeah. Put it in the book. <laughs> so good. It blew my mind. Can we talk about Rutger Howard in this movie? Please. Please. Yes. Uh, Fucking uh, listen. He's amazing. Hot. Amazing. He's hot. I love him. I mean, I love it. Paul Rubens also amazing yes. in this movie. I mean, I remember um, not to pivot from Rucker because we will go back to Rucker, but just for a quick second on the Paul Rubens thing, we all, I'm sure we all remember when he was arrested for uh, exposing himself in a porn theater. Although I'm not sure, you know, why doesn't matter. Anyway, I didn't understand what was happening. I was just okay. like, Pee Wee Herman has been arrested for going <laughs> to the movies. And I was like, people should be able to go to the movies. This seems Relax. like a little bit much. This is um, but this was back in the day when, um, I don't know, people went to movie theaters and, I don't know, didn't masturbate. He got caught. Phil, I, I understand now what happened, but when no, I no, was no, I understand. I'm, 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 but, I'm, like, I thought the whole point of going to porn theaters at the time was to masturbate. Like, yeah, I don't really This is understand. why I find it bizarre. I mean, but I'm he's like, famous. I think that's why. I think non-famous. Like, who is patrolling the aisles and just ignored all the other people masturbating and was right. like, "You, Pee Wee Herman, it's time for you to go." I, I go to think... porn. I go to porn theaters for the articles. 
But all this being said, it was obviously a very big deal. It was very damaging to his career as a child actor. <laughs> um, and people were just like, this is bad. Go away. We never want to see you again. And in 92, uh, Tim Burton puts him as the Penguin's dad. Um, he doesn't have any lines, but it was sort of like an olive branch and an attempt to try to get him back in the public eye. And he does this. And I remember that was a big kind of lightning rod for this film, which was sort of Paul Rubens is back. He's funny in this film and he is very funny in this movie. He's probably got more screen time than Rutger Hauer has, I think, or it's probably pretty close. Um, And he, he's just, I don't know. He's hamming it up and he's great. And I think same with Rutger. Um. the timeline of that is insane though because he was arrested july of 91 and this comes out in 92 so like he was freshly (laughs) arrested yeah i mean Um, uh batman returns is june of 92 i mean wild uh (laughs) you know let peewee go free that was a huge injustice but um the fact that his character's name was Pee Wee as well is just like it's all just too good. It's too easy. I didn't. I didn't, ha- I didn't watch Pee Wee Herman. I didn't have like an attachment to Pee Wee Herman, mm. but I loved him in this movie so much. And the sure. the prolonged death scene Ugh. is one of the funniest yeah. like things a, a young me had ever seen in her life. And cutting and we back just, to like, it during the credits. During the credits, and like that was before post credit stuff was like a major thing. It was like Ferris Bueller and a few other things, yeah. but like not a lot. And so like we thought it was just a fucking riot, and we would imitate it. Like, we would imitate it all the time. Um, it's great. Yeah. It's a great okay. bit. I mean, and it's entirely improvised. Apparently, I think like every actor in this movie is kind of dialed in. Like. Yes. Sutherland is clearly like ashamed to be in this movie, but like everybody is like just kinda on on point. Um and like even he's like, you know, trying something. Um Eric yeah. Arquette, David Arquette also totally knows yeah. what he's doing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, genuinely, and I and I don't <laughs> know why, but my outside of Paul Rubin's prolonged death scene. The, the 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 line that I would quote from this movie all the time uh-huh. is when David Arquette would go, "Let me in, I'm hungry." And Luke Perry <laughs> goes, "You're floating." And I don't know why, I was just like the height of humor for me as a kid. I thought it was so funny. David Arquette's great in this, and what I love is that their their fangs are ter- like so hard to talk around. Yeah. Um, and I think they're all just kind of going with it. Ricker Hauer especially is just sort of like. I'm gonna make this part of the whole performance, yeah. but um, yeah, he's great. I mean, like, I knew Rutger Hauer from this before I saw Blade Runner, um, as he would want it, <laughs> and <laughs> I was like, I I don't think I was like it's the guy from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but like, probably, sure. I might have, um, but yeah, I think I think he's so incredible. I think that that his death is lame and stupid. And I don't know, he should have died by the hairspray thing or something like that. Like, that's a way better way to kill him than what yeah. happens. But um, I think he's, yeah, I think he's fantastic. Um, and I want to shout out um, Sasha Jensen, who plays yes. the the grueler, the basketball mm-hmm. kid who gets turned, who does this and Dazed and Confused and then kind and of then like disappears. disappears. Yeah. I think he's so good in this. He's really good. Like, he's having the time the of his life. Like, he's so <laughs> good. Can. The little bat ears that, like, yep. these these poor people had to put on there. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, uh, he's great. And I also flagged him because I was like, oh, yeah, he's great at Days of Confused. And then I looked him up and it's like he kind of just disappeared. But mm-hmm. he does have the burden of 
just being a straight up vampire in the middle of a basketball game in broad daylight in front that of everybody. That rules. That rules. That's so funny. <laughs> I mean, it does, but it's also it defies logic a little bit. We're no, just but like... then you, but then you get to watch Ben Affleck just be like, Ugh, like, and you're like, thanks, Ben Affleck. <laughs> he, is that like shot. In, he is like indoors, you know. He's like, no, he's well, it's like... not the sunlight that's the issue for me. Okay. It's just like. Are we ever going to talk about the fact that a vampire just showed up in the middle of our basketball game? I, I guess we're just not. Why I would mean, we? Why would we? We should not do that. It's crazy. I do want to say... Yes, go ahead. Sorry, Joanna. Well, Phil, I know you've watched some Buffy, but you're perhaps... I've watched three seasons of Buffy. Sure. Okay. Perhaps as a Buffy, a fledgling Buffy scholar, mm. you will mm-hmm. recall all the really enjoyable ways in which people explain away vampires on Buffy Vampire Slayer, like gangs on PCP, <laughs> or like someone falling on a barbecue <laughs> fork. Like, you know, there's just all kinds of... I love all of that, and I just wish we got one in this, is kind of what I'm saying. Like, I, I kind of people. wish we got... Yeah, Whatever. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, uh, a weird little piece of trivia is that Alyssa Milano was originally set to play Buffy, oh. which would have been interesting. Um, I don't know, but I sure. And it <laughs> doesn't like it. It's gotta be. Uh, it's gotta be Christine. It just. It just does. Yeah, yeah, she she is great. I it, I also just in terms of of some of the production of this movie, it's worth saying that they were limited to five weeks to accommodate Luke Perry's uh, Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero schedule. Uh, so this movie was clearly a little bit rushed. Um, I also just want to very briefly talk about the remake that almost happened. I don't know if you guys remember this. I have a vague recollection of it, but I guess in May of 09, Roy Lee and Doug Davison's Vertigo Entertainment were working with, and how do you, is it Kuzui? I, forgive me. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's Japanese, last name. but I do not know exactly okay. how to pronounce it. So the, the, basically with the director and the producer of the film to try to remake the movie without Joss Whedon, with no connection to the television show. And as you can imagine, the internet was completely fine with this. There was no big deal. Uh, They were not. Uh, The fans lost their fucking minds. Um, But it kind of kept moving along. And then I guess it was officially kind of killed in 2010. There were some rights issues or what have you. Long story short, didn't happen. And now, obviously, we're sort of in this post-Joss situation where they want to reboot the show. There's clearly a desire to do that, but I don't think that it's certainly hasn't happened yet. There have been various attempts to do so. Um, What are your thoughts, guys, on a reboot of Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Do you think they should? They should let me do it and they should let me make her trans. That's that's okay. the way to do it. I mean, I'm I'm in. Where do I sign for that version? Listen, but... I understand that you're the head of the former 20th Century Fox Corporation and you I, have all said no such yeah. thing. But I but I mean, truly, do you think that I mean, and I don't even mean a reboot revival. I don't mean any of that because I think Sarah Michelle Gellar's made it abundantly clear that she's done with the role and she's done with the universe. Is Christy just... Swanson though? <laughs> I bet she is a veil. Why don't we do a like Spider-Man thing and just have both Christy and Sarah Michelle as layers from different realities? I guess. I I just, I, and again, I am not the Buffy stand that you guys are. So I don't want to, I'm just, from my vantage point, there's a part of me that feels like we are in a vacuum when it comes to what Buffy brought to television. 
It feels like what used to be a staple of broadcast TV were genre shows, genre procedural shows, soapy, what have you. And there's none of that anymore. So I'm... Well, that's not true because the CW is like running on this and that's where Buffy lived was the WB and then the CW. Like the CW has like, you know all the Julie Plex shows that she's making and all the like, you know, and, and there's a lot of reboot fever over that, right? Like Charmed and Roswell and like all that sort of stuff, like rebooting sure. the WB shows. I'm not saying I want a Buffy reboot. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a higher probability that it's bad than it's good or that it's a shell of itself. Like you can't really do right. it without the Jossies or whatever. Right. But I've also, and, and I'm as fatigued as anyone with, with like unimaginative IB, IP, like, sure you know juicing and stuff like that but i've also there's just been a enough times that someone has had a point of view with a juicy piece of ip like sure. mad max um or something like that where the the reboot or the sequel or the reborkel or whatever you want to call it was like worth it and mm-hmm. given how many inspiring and inspired writers like feel so passionately about Buffy I feel like like uh maybe Emily or someone else like someone really smart might have a take that I'd be interested in sure Um, I would watch it yeah oh yeah I would watch it I I think like I think that this is the kind of property where the premise is so pure that you can kind of just do whatever you want with it like I think um, I kind of feel similarly about X-Files, though I think X-Files has way more like cultural baggage just because conspiracy theories now run our entire political system. <laughs> but um, but yeah, there's something so pure to that core that if you, you know, if you found the right writer who wasn't beholden to what Joss did, I think it yeah. could be really good. And like, but then you'd have to, you know, get out from under the shadow of him. And I don't I don't know if that's possible. Well, I I just I mean, my my big thing is just the iconography of both those shows is is so um ingrained in culture now admittedly like there's a whole new generation that probably doesn't even know that 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 the original buffy exists or the original x-files exists but the idea of someone taking on the mantle of a role like buffy or a role roles like uh Mulder and scully just feels like crazy to me but i guess anything's possible i'm certainly not saying it's impossible but my baby has no idea either of those shows existed sure she's but so she's seen babylon stupid yeah she's um, seen babylon <laughs> so. so fucking stupid i mean i actually i think the way to go with the slayer property mm. and the comics have done this to a certain degree is to do backstory like previous generations right. of slayers right. Right. like i think that is a safer more fertile territory than sure. like let's um you know yeah because people will just be like waiting for a cameo or like waiting i'm just like get yeah. away from it no it's and probably if, right. you know? yeah. if you could get sarah michelle back which you won't be able to the way to do it would be to do like a fucking she's the watcher now and there's a new teen girl she mm-hmm. has to look out for like that do the mm-hmm. gilmore girls thing but with vampire slayers great uh fantastic i and, um... and she's trans that's how we fixed it i would i would buy this pitch in the elevator i would buy this pitch thank you i um, am so it was really funny because i watched this film the other day um and then uh steven root popped up and then i watched succession and steven root popped up and then i watched watched barry Barry. and steven root popped up and i was like is steven root everywhere can i can i tell a steven root story please 
So there is this very, uh, Joanna knows this since she's been to TCA press tour. There's this extremely strict rule. You don't take photos with talent. It makes us look unprofessional, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I always, I'm a former TCA board member. I've always been like, everybody should get one exception. You know, (laughs) like if Taylor Swift came to TCA press tour for some reason, I don't fucking care. I'm getting a picture with her. Even if I have to like, you know, be hauled (laughs) off into the sunset or something like (laughs) But I actually have burned my one photo on Stephen Root. <laughs> I was so excited to see him at some Hallmark event that I was like, listen, you got to get a photo with my wife. And he seemed so baffled. And I was like, oh, right, because we're not supposed to ask for, ask for photos. And I was like, but wait, no, actually, probably like Stephen Root doesn't. This is like 2013, too. So it's like he's not like now he's everywhere. And Libby's Libby just reminded me he was also with his wife Romy Rosemont. So like we got a nice photo, fucking Stephen Root and his wife and that's my fantastic. wife. It's that's my Stephen Root post, story. You should post it on our uh, on our Twitter. Um, <laughs> well, uh, watch, <laughs> watching this, in which Stephen Root looks approximately forty. Yeah. And I was like, how long has Stephen Root been forty? <laughs> um, like, he's seventy. He was forty-one. We made he's seventy-one now, and I like didn't know that. He's but I, like, 71? seventy-one. He does yeah. not look. 71. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, he's he's double billing it this weekend in Succession and Barry, and the man is seventy-one. Because watching this, I was like, oh no, he's like forty here. How old is he now? Yeah. Um, and this is pre, wow. you know, pre news radio Stephen Root. So. Yeah, that's why. That's why I love him. Is, is yeah. I I mean, listen, I'm not the first person to say this. And I will be the last. Stephen, the root, the the root, the range that Stephen Root has is kind of unparalleled. In so far as that, I find him unbelievably funny, and also unbelievably sad, and sometimes scary. And like what he's done just with this with the Coen Brothers is just sort of it's a it's fascinating. It's he's he's he isn't, and my assumption is that he's probably just a super laid back, doesn't give a shit, just like it's effortless to him to do what he does it's incredible i've having met him i can i can assure you that yes he's like he was just very chill like i have met obviously a lot of celebrities i love that like i love that 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 joanna's story about like meeting someone meeting luke perry and being like oh my god and i'm like i met stephen root (laughs) no can i just tell you that i would have i like if i were to have ever burned my one tca photo which i haven't yet it would have been on luke perry he we were at the langham hotel and like um the i don't know how to describe the langham hotel in a way that makes it understandable to people because it's just like unnecessarily fancy in this like how would you describe it it is a confuse it is a confusing labyrinth of luxury like it's just (laughs) and luke perry had a new puppy and he was walking his puppy around the loop of the courtyard of the langham hotel Mm -hmm. and then he came and did an interview with me and for riverdale of course the seminal work and then he he was like joanna you're cell phone screen is cracked treat yourself better get a new phone and i was just like thank you luke perry (laughs) what a gemstone (laughs) can i just say though the selfie thing is it's a real like line in the sand for me like i've never done it and it's not to say that i wouldn't to your point emily if taylor swift if i met taylor swift i'm getting a picture with taylor swift but 
I was watching TikTok the other day and this girl was talking about how she was at a Taylor Swift concert recently. She was in the bathroom and weirdly the bathroom was like entirely empty because no one was there because Taylor Swift was singing and no one wanted to miss anything. She goes to the bathroom and she looks over, she's washing her hands and she, Emma Watson is right next to her and she's an enormous Harry Potter fan. And she's like, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't say something. So Emma Watson like dries her hands and she's leaving. She turns to her and she says, I'm so sorry. And I hate to ask this, but and Emma Watson was like, I really can't give you a selfie in the bathroom. <laughs> like it was just so like she was and it was and she was very lovely and she was very sweet about it. But it just goes to show that like we're in a weird place with these selfies in terms of like when people feel like they can ask for them. I think I it's kind like, of amazing. I feel like the Hallmark party was a really good spot to do it though, Emily. Yeah. Like yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, That's yeah. that is a wild shindig every year at TCA. A different so. a different friend of mine burned his on Kieran and Shipka. And I'm like, Kieran and Shipka's great. Mm. But you know what? It just feels like it just feels like you could have you could have done better. You could have gone for Stephen Root. Yeah. You gotta hold yeah. out for Stephen Root. <laughs> Um, I, you know, it's funny as I, I'm sort of scrolling through um, the, the plot here just to make sure that there isn't anything that we haven't hit. But I do want to talk about um, th- the locations in this movie, the graveyard, the what have you, are all kind of, it is funny to watch this because this movie only had a budget of like, I think it was $7 million. And you can see that it didn't have a lot of money, obviously. But it's still location heavy, which is not cheap. But like back in the day when you actually shot stuff on location, but there's a really there's one great location which is I guess it's like an abandoned theme park or something. Oh yeah, no, it's the it's the LA Parade floats graveyard. Okay, that's and they, it looks they like great. They have this, they have this insert shot that I never I didn't remember was there where they just like show you the sign of where it is <laughs> and then they go into there and that's when you get the incredible line I'm a god now you're a coat rack like incredible scene. Um. Can I tell you about how yes. Donald Sutherland's character dies in the original script? Please. So, like, Rudker Hauer has... He his, dies like, at the end in the original script, or...? No, in the, oh, okay. in the similar spot. Okay. But um, Buffy's far away with, with mm-hmm. Pike. She's not, like, right there. Sure. And uh, Lothos has him, like, mesmerized the way that he does and sort of stuff like that. Like, oh, So, like... Uh, Merrick is like giving this whole speech. There's a lot of Lothos and Merrick speeches that are cut, like so sure. many. He's giving this whole speech. He's got the gun behind his back. And then oh. Lothos is like, Well, maybe you think you could stop me with that gun in your hand, you know? And he's like, Maybe oh. I can. And, um, and he's like, You, you know, once you've been my servant for a hundred years, you will like learn. And then Merrick shoots himself in the head to like prevent himself from, Oh, turning. he kills himself. Yeah. So that, so that Lothos can't turn him into a vampire. And then Lothos is pissed about that. That's better than what we got. uh, (laughs) Don't you think? I mean, all of the staking. I'm I'm so, I mean, maybe, maybe the best thing that this movie does is teach Joss Whedon that you need to have some kind of special effect when you stake someone. Otherwise it looks super stupid. Oh my God. It's just a lot of people. I mean, that's why the the Paul Rubens thing is so funny because like, he's just at least acknowledging how dumb this whole thing looks, but yeah, it's crazy. Um, I, the end of this film, it it kind of has like, I don't want to say one too many endings, but it does feel like it has kind of too many endings. When you get to the dance and the dance is being sort of attacked by all these, a baby has entered the chat. Hi. Oh my God. What a face. Hi. She loves looking at people on screens. It's it's her favorite thing. Look at 
your face. <laughs> a really good face. It's a very good face. Look at those eyes. Aww. She doesn't fucking know who Buffy is, though. So no, but she dummy. will. What a total I'm sure dummy. someday she'll know. <laughs> um, the whole dance thing starts a little lame to me. Like it slowly gets to where, like once it's attacked, it starts to get ramped up a little bit. But before, I feel like there's a little bit of like, I don't know. It just feels like another stupid dance. I don't know. It just didn't feel special to me and i i i I, and i'm not sure how to articulate this other than the fact that like you hate the environment and you didn't like the uh very important environmental statement that they were making with the uh yeah yeah that's what it is i don't tread on me (laughs) why is this why is this school called hemory high school i kept like i kept trying to figure out if that's a reference and it's just like but the only thing you find if you Google Hemery is Hemery High School from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Joss, come on the pod. Explain this to us. And then we'll Joss, interrogate do you. Not come on the pod. <laughs> we are, we are, I, I don't need that in my life. But I, I'll just say that um, I, I liked once we got into the bowels of the school and like it had just a little bit more atmosphere and it was cool and you know, there's the, as you mentioned, the aforementioned uh, hairspray thing, which is a cool beat. I liked all of that. And obviously I love the Ruben stuff. But then to what you mentioned earlier, uh, Joanna, when when Lothos shows up again, and then you have like this, again, as we said, bad fight scenes, just like Very brutal bad. fight scenes. And then like he just dies and like covers his head with his cape. Just... Yeah, there's no cool thing. There's nothing. Nothing that she does is tied to her character development at all in her win, and that's that's a real failure for me of of the script. Yeah. There, it's just sort of like it needs for your hero to triumph. It needs to be connected to like some big character growth moment for them, or something that they've learned along the way, or something like that. And for her, it's just like another fight that's somehow lamer than like a previous yeah. fight that she had. I do love the vampire seniors. Like yes, I invited yes. them. They're seniors. <laughs> like that's yes. that's fun. That was great. I mean, Hillary Swank is good in this movie. Yeah, she's really fun. Um This is when does she when is she the karate kid? Is that I think that's like ninety three, ninety four? Not the question I thought you were gonna ask me. I thought yeah, you were gonna say like 94. boys don't cry or something like that. Yeah. I didn't know you were gonna I know bring boys up don't the... cry because that's ninety nine. <laughs> I'm not I'm not a... <laughs> I thought you were gonna bring up the seminal karate kid. Because she's in the karate hold on, now I'm looking it up. I think it's like ninety four. Is it? I think. And yeah. it's the new Karate Kid or the next, next Karate Kid? The next Karate Kid. Next Karate Kid. Okay. Uh, 94, you're right. So two years after this, uh, she is uh, she's the titular Karate Kid. Um, yeah. So, you know, I I liked the seniors bit. I liked that it, it, it feels a little... Um, it just... It, it has at least some fun once the once there's, like, vampires to be fighting and all that. Yeah. And then, uh, and then Luke and Chrissy take off on a motorcycle. I mean, what's what's not to love? I do. I like the line where Luke Perry's like, "Buffy, you're not like the other girls," and she says, "That's just it. I am." And you're like, Joss thought he was onto something here, yeah. but also like he, that, like the rest of the movie hasn't grounded that idea in anything. No. So like, it feels to me like that's kind of ground zero for where the TV show is going, but also sure, within sure. the context of this movie, it's kind of a hilarious non sequitur. <laughs> that whole back and forth, like, yes. uh, yes. I suppose you want to lead. No, me neither. Uh, that's not in Joss's script. That's, Listen, that's oh, added. interesting. Listen, I gotta say, this is Emily's, uh, Emily's oh. Proustian reverie into mm. like outfits in movies from the uh-huh. 90s. 
Buffy's got some good ass outfits. She's got some movie. great outfits. Her yep. prom dress is so fucking good. I yep, want yep, that yep. prom dress. That's what yep. I'm wearing to my second wedding. Um, <laughs> with I should, the bottom yeah. ruffle ripped off or not? Obviously. I'm going to go in with it on, and then when I proclaim my love for my wife, I'm going to rip it off. Oh, I'm just going to be like, it's going to be a. a it's moment like your of, version of uh, of breaking the light bulb or, or it's, a glass. Yeah, it's it's going to be a moment of a supreme character growth for me, and that's what's important. But like, I have a I have a photo of her and her like cheerleading. Um, she's got like a sports bra and like some some mm-hmm. some wild leggings, and it's nice. super colorful. It's super fun. I just like, you know what? Christy Swanson in this movie, my understanding is she's never done anything bad. And actually she disappeared no. from the face of the earth in like 1999. Yeah. But yeah. like, um, it's weird. Yeah. yeah, everything in this movie was just like, if I had seen this at 12, we'd be having a very different conversation right now. Um, I, so yeah, so, please. Sorry, something yeah. I like to, in addition to her keen fashion sense is mm-hmm. um, that like, she looks strong, you know, yes. she's like, yes, when yes. she does like the fight scenes are bad, but so they got a someone to do a lot of fun flips and she looks like she could actually do that and like the slayer doesn't have to have a lot of muscles because it's like a superpower thing but mm-hmm. you know sarah always looked like extremely tiny and christy looked like when she kicked something it would like really hurt yep. and i like that she seems genuinely athletic is yeah. the thing yeah. um in a way that that uh, sarah michelle geller doesn't but um i'd like to rate this movie because joanna i'd like to hear your thoughts on the film that we're covering next week as well <laughs> oh okay. uh very briefly um so i saw this in 92 i, I don't I, i'd be lying if i said as a kid i really got it i don't i don't really think that i did i probably would have given it like a 60 back then before this podcast i came into this podcast at like a 65 <laughs> Mm-hmm. But I'm going up. I'm at a 72 now because I feel like this movie is like, it's good, not great. I think there's a lot of good stuff in it. Um, I appreciated its running time. It doesn't overstay its welcome. <laughs> um, and I think there's a lot of good stuff in it. But yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's oh. <laughs> um, she has thoughts. She's outraged um, at your, at yeah, your 72. My apologies. Um, Emily. Where are you on this? Oh gosh, I like came in at like a forty-eight. Like oh, I don't wow. think this is a, I don't think this is a bad movie. I also don't think mm. it's a good movie. Like mm, I'm like okay. I tend to be like I tend to go lower than you because I'm trying to use the whole of the scale. You know, I'm trying to like Fair enough. be all. Fair enough. But like uh, talking about it, I like this more than I did. I'm gonna go up to a fifty-three. I think a fifty is okay. like the line between recommend and don't. This is extremely mild recommend. Her mostly for the outfits, but also because there's some fun shit in it. So. Joanna, where are you on uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer? As I warned you at the top, I am incapable of being objective about this. I'm going to give it a nostalgia-soaked 85. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. I like that. I like that. Um, so next week, we have um, co-creator of Yellow Jackets, Bart Nickerson, coming on with uh, Carrie Gologli, a development executive at AMC, to talk about Encino Man. Um, what a this... collection of nouns. <laughs> I, they're all they're all words that are truthful um <laughs> i uh i have not seen encino man since 92 um joanna are do you have thoughts on encino man have you seen encino man i have not seen it since 92 for sure but but you remember it being a cultural moment right i mean holly yeah. shore holly shore brendan, brendan fraser, fraser <laughs> sure it Sean became Aston. kind of a <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, um, like, I don't know, it it, it blurs with all the other polyshoreness that was happening at the time for me. 
Um, sure. So yeah, I don't. I don't know that I can speak, speak intelligently it about on it. Any level. I, no. It kind of had a moment because at the Oscars, when Brendan Fraser and uh, Ki Hui Kwan both yeah. won, yes. everyone was like. And Seelman is back and it's winning Oscars. And I'm just like, okay, everyone needs to relax. Like, I know that we love nostalgia, but, um, but Emily, have you seen Encino Man? Uh, I believe I have. I like, okay. this is, this is another one of those movies where I'm like, I saw a lot of Pauly Shore movies because sure. my sister was like obsessed with him. So I'm sure uh-huh. that I've seen it, but also uh-huh. like, I have no specific memory of it. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, it, it's, it is interesting um, how, I mean, it, it may be, $40 million in 1992 guys like that's not nothing like this movie was like a thing but um you know listen I'm excited to, to watch it again it's uh 88 minutes Emily with credits so you know that's you gotta love that listen listen I have had my issues with us covering this year of cinema but all these movies are fucking short and that's great <laughs> I love that for you honestly that's, that is the beauty of 92 is that these movies did Why they're like can't they make 90 minute movies anymore it's crazy because you gotta you gotta load in all the lore you know just to make sure yeah i mean again this is what joss is pissed that they cut out of his script he's like i oh i talked about the watch the watcher backstory lothos is rising for a reason there's a blood pool like he just took all that stuff and made it the master in season one of buffy it was fine but um i do think it is interesting i mean on top of the fact that movies are very long we also have to sit through 15 to 20 minutes of uh trailers before we see a movie in theaters as well so Mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a whole experience i mean to your point the dnd movie one of the biggest knocks i had on the Mm -hmm. dnd movie is that it's too long and then if you stripped out 30 minutes out of that movie i i I would say that is a solid like smash all a hit Um, i agree with you as it is i'm like i liked it but you know tighten up you know i felt similarly i wouldn't i say as much i'd say like 15 minutes but to to your point um i i it overstayed its welcome but by the end i was like i'm ready for this to be for this to wrap up but you know, yeah, it's uh, I, yeah, Emily. We took we took the baby to Dungeons and Dragons. Like that's the thing that we were doing for a while. Is we would go on their like sens- their sensory friendly screenings at the Alamo, and they yeah. would go on Tuesdays with our baby and see movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is now at an age where seeing a movie breaks her brain, so she could not like she was just over overstimulated for like seventy two hours after that movie. But oh, no. uh, she seemed to really like it. <laughs> Then we took her to see Air, and she was so upset that Ben Affleck wasn't talking back to her. So <laughs> Rude, genuinely. I love the movies you're exposing your child to at this point. It's, well, it's fantastic. Her first well, movie, same. was it Babylon? Was Her, her first Babylon? movie was Avatar 2, The Way of Water. Oh, right, right, right. She learned yeah. The Way of Water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, took, she took a huge dump in Babylon, which was good for her. You know, it's, it's, on, it's on brand. And that's why I love that movie so much. I got the I got um, the fucking forty X experience. The only thing that that we have left to do, Emily, is you didn't uh, give us your queer uh, queer phobia rating. Oh on God, Vampire Slayer. Oh God, I guess like a like a like a four. It's just like there's something about it that is like yeah, you know, uh-huh, kind uh-huh. of homophobic, but not really. Yep. It's like it is in that space between homophobia and camp that is like so many of these '90s movies exist. Uh-huh. So yeah. I don't know. Get so, ready for that uh, in Strictly Ballroom as well. Hell yeah. Oh. I love Baz. Oh my god. Uh, the Bogo Pogo. Um, the, there's, 
there's a line right when she says when yes. when like a biker guy's like you want to feel some real power between your legs and she's uh-huh. like i do and she steals his motorcycle and he's like dyke you're a dyke i'm telling the world i kind of i'm like yeah yeah that's no that's gay rights i'm like i'm like <laughs> this piece of shit is like you're a dyke and i'm like oh, yeah it's like i gave i gave basic instinct an eight oh, on right. the queer phobia scale but a, a an enthusiastic thumbs up of an eight where it's just like this is objectively homophobic but also you know what it kind of rules the movie's insane so like it's it's hard to really hold I, anything against i was i was a friend a friend of mine who i went to middle school with was over yesterday and we were looking at our yearbooks from them and the 1992 yearbook the eighth grade class sure. listed their like their favorites of certain things and it is an incredible time capsule and they did and they did guys and gals and like the gals favorite actors and it was like christian slater and like blah blah and then and then the guys was sharon stone sharon stone sharon stone like three sharon stones in a row and i was like okay 92 I mean, <laughs> Sharon Stone would murder all of them gleefully like it's just incredible to think about that that's what they lusted for I just I can't want... believe a middle a middle school yearbook editor let let them do that I was like okay I want basic instinct three to be Catherine Trammell teaching at a middle school <laughs> Sharon Stone. I would watch the hell out of that that sounds incredible. Um, Joanna, thank you so much for coming for on to talk me. about Buffy with us. Um, where where yeah, can where the can people find you? you? What do you want to plug? Oh, I work for the ringer.com. So we do a bunch of podcasts over there, like the ringerverse, where we talk about genre, prestige TV, where we talk about prestige TV, trial by content, where I talk about zombies right now we're doing, well, this is coming out way later, so it won't matter, but we, we debate things every week sure. and um, yeah, on, on the internet. At Joe wrote this on all social media, et cetera. Uh, Joanna, you're one of my favorite people to talk about uh, dumb bullshit with. And I mean that as a huge compliment. Ditto. I missed you at TCA this year. <laughs> Listen, oh, I, Steve, I, I, I saw Stephen Root and that was that. That was, was it. That was the yeah, height. You, you peaked. That's what you're going to I mean, what are you going to do from there? I, on? I, I also, Joanna, love talking about all things pop culture with you. You're one of my favorite uh tweeters and writers and podcasters so thank you so much truly it's uh, it's been too long so i hope that you'll come back and talk about something else with us in the future you know i will it's a threat <laughs> and a promise all right we'll talk to you soon bye guys A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. 
Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.